Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. Now this episode is going to be a little different than all the others, because this episode is going to be the start of a series covering the big one, Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Now most of us remember Hurricane Katrina because it is one of the defining moments of our lives. It's kind of similar to 9-11 in that most people remember Hurricane Katrina almost as well as they remember September 11th. And if I were to make an episode to cover all of the events of Hurricane Katrina and do it justice, it would be well into probably five hours as one single episode. In order to save you all from having to listen to me talk and drone on for five straight hours, I'm going to break it up into multiple episodes. So this episode is going to be episode one of the series, and it's going to cover the formation of the hurricane. Well, first we're going to do a background on hurricanes. I know I did one with uh, Hurricane Rita, but we're going to redo it again because that was way back in October of 2021. So uh, this is going to be uh, an overview of hurricanes, and then we're going to do the formation of Katrina, uh, its first landfall in Florida, travel through the Gulf, and then landfall in New Orleans. Now this episode is going to end as the hurricane is leaving New Orleans and headed towards Mississippi. Now episode two is going to pick up with the hurricane leaving Missis or leaving New Orleans and landing in Mississippi, traveling through Mississippi, and then going up and uh, joining a cold front up near the Great Lakes and basically ending the storm and basically an overview of how the storm impacted the areas in Mississippi and around there. And then the final episode will be the failures of the levees in uh, New Orleans, including all of the flooding and all of the stories that go along with that. Katrina is pretty close to the disaster, to end all disasters, and we are going to treat it as such because it is such a monumental event in disaster history and American history at that. So, to start out, we're going to, like I said, cover how a hurricane forms and if you remember the Hurricane Rita episode, you can fast forward through some of this. But since, again, it's been nearly nine months since we talked about it, we could all use a refresher. I know I certainly could. So I started the Rita episode with when hurricanes form and how they form, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But I left out a huge part of hurricanes in that episode, their names. Now, I briefly touched on it, but not nearly enough. Hurricanes didn't always have names. Originally, it was just year of the hurricane and number of the storm in that season. So, like, the first storm in 1951 would be 1951, number one. The fourth would be 1951, number four. Now, I know what you're thinking. That would inevitably end up confusing everyone when multiple storms were in the Atlantic at once, which would cause rumors to run wild and warnings and watches to get all mixed up, because how do you know if hurricane number one from 1951 is hitting you, or if it's hurricane number two from 1951. That gets all weird and confusing, and you're trying to listen to the radio, and you're trying to remember which storm was supposed to hit you next. Was it four or five? If you remember wrong, you may hear that five is a couple hundred miles away still, and think you have time to prepare, but it was actually four, and you're getting smacked with a category five storm the very next day. That kind of thing happened to people. They would think, oh, I'm supposed to be paying attention to hur uh, hurricane number four. It's still a couple hundred miles off. I have time to prepare when they actually are supposed to be listening for hurricane number three, and they get smacked in the mouth and inevitably possibly die. So they came up with a solution. Name the storms, actual names. That helps people remember. This naming trend started in 1953 with female names, and by 1979, storms were being named both male and female names. The names are generally in alphabetical order and are on a six-year rotating cycle. 
So Elsa, Hurricane Elsa, was used last year for one of the hurricanes that struck the United States. It was a Category 1 hurricane that tracked up basically the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. The name Elsa will then again be up for use in 2027. Now, that is if it's not extremely powerful, destructive, deadly, or it breaks records. Occasionally, such as Katrina, a storm will be so bad, so powerful, so destructive, or so deadly that the name will never be used again and is retired from the rotation. That list of names is 94 names long at this point and includes some truly legendary and terrible storms highlighted by the one we're going to discuss today, Katrina. It used to be that if the list of names was exhausted, then they would continue on with Greek letters. So if you made it to whatever the Z name is for the alphabet, the next letter, the next storm would be called Alpha, Beta, and then Theta. I don't know the Greek alphabet, I'm sorry. Uh, that happened in 2005, and then again in 2020. And then they changed that policy after the 2020 season because it was confusing, so now they just have a backup list of names in case they go past the number of names they have prepared. Because, again, not many people know the Greek alphabet, <laughs> me, so people were hearing alpha, beta, the theta, and then they were hearing letters that came when they should come in, it was just confusing everyone, and they were confused as to what order they were in, and it was just a whole mess. So they just said, we're not doing that anymore. We will just come up with a backup list of names, and we will name them in alphabetical order. So now on to our discussion of what a hurricane actually is and why it forms the way it does. Hurricane season is basically from June until late November. This is the time period when ocean temperatures are at their highest, and the area is ripe for hurricane formation. To form a hurricane, you need two main ingredients. Number one, warm water temperature, generally above 80 degrees Fahrenheit. You don't have warm water, you don't have a hurricane. That warm water is what feeds the hurricane energy it needs to continue to spin and grow. The second thing you need is a cluster of thunderstorms. You'll hear them referred to as tropical waves. Now, I know a lot of what people hear tropical wave and think like an actual wave in the ocean. That's not what this is. This is an area of low pressure in the atmosphere, like basically a wave in the atmosphere. This wave is situated north-south and travels westward across the Atlantic Ocean. This low pressure starts, shockingly, as far away as northwest India. Basically, the low pressure gets pushed off from the Indian monsoon high-pressure areas and travels all the way across Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Libya and Algeria off into the Atlantic Ocean. That's where it really picks up steam to becoming a hurricane or not. But there's more that goes into it. Obviously, it needs the warm water to grow, but its location latitudinally really determines whether it can get the spin it needs to grow into a hurricane. If it's too far north, the water isn't warm enough there, so that rules that out. If it is too close to the equator as it comes off the African coast, well, there isn't enough of the Coriolis effect to impact the storms and get them to start spinning. Now, if you remember the Rita episode, I'm about to go into a whole explanation on what the Coriolis effect is. And I'm going to do my best to explain this in as simple terms as possible, so bear with me, because it is, again, complicated and confusing, and we're going to, well, break it down. First of all, different parts of the Earth travel at different speeds. Everyone takes 24 hours to rotate, right? It, everywhere on the Earth takes 24 hours to rotate. But let's say you're standing somewhere like 10 feet from the North Pole. Your rotation for a day is going to be a circle with the circumference of basically 63 feet. So radius is 10 feet times 2 times pi is 62.83, but for ease of math, I'm going around to 63 because I like rounding. 
it's going to take you 24 hours to travel 63 feet to end up in the same relative position. So if you're standing 10 feet from the North Pole, you are traveling at a whopping 5 ten thousandths of a mile per hour. Super duper slow. Now if you're standing at the equator, you still return to the same relative position in 24 hours. Except you travel, oh, I don't know, something like 25,000 miles. Which means you're going about 1,040 miles per hour. What does this have to do with the Coriolis effect? So the best way I can think to describe this is imagine you have a piece of paper. You stick the pin in the middle of the paper. What you do is take the paper and spin it in a counterclockwise direction while moving your pin in a straight line down. Counterclockwise because that's the way the Earth spins. You don't get a straight line, even though you made a straight down motion. You get a curved line. If you do the same thing going in the opposite direction, you get a curved line the opposite way. Basically, the different areas of the paper are moving at slightly different speeds as they rotate, causing the line to become curved as it gets to a faster moving portion of the paper. This is more or less what is happening on Earth. In the northern hemisphere, things spin counterclockwise. In the southern hemisphere, they spin clockwise. Now, that's a whole lot of words about the Coriolis effect, but what does that have to do with hurricanes? These tropical waves are systems of low pressure. So what happens when you have a low pressure? Air flows from the area of higher pressure to the area of lower pressure in order to balance it out and make it even. Because this area is so large, the Coriolis effect happens and the air gets pushed to the right as it flows into the low pressure area because it cannot move in a straight line because of the rotation of the Earth. So let me see if I can explain this in a better way. Now, I don't know about you guys, but way back when I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago technically, I guess, it's been 15 years, anyway, not the point, there was a uh, game that you could play at the carnival at the county fair that came to town where they had a giant spinning table, and you took a ball, and you tried to roll the ball into the hole in the middle. And if you were paying attention, every time you rolled the ball in a straight line towards the hole, it would go flying off towards the right, right? Because they spin it really fast, they spin it to their right really fast. When you roll the ball, it'd go flying off a different direction instead of straight at the hole. That's essentially what is happening in the formation of a hurricane. The, imagine that the air, the thunderstorms in this situation, the air going into the thunderstorms is that ball. And it's moving towards this low pressure. You're trying to get the thunderstorm into the middle of the hole. You're trying to get the air into the middle of the hole. And instead of going straight at it, which it should because it looks like it's a straight line, it gets sent off to the side because of the rotation of a different location on the circle that is in there. I hope that makes sense to you guys. That's the best way I can explain it. It's a weird explanation. It's a weird symptom of being on a globe and being on a spinning globe. So, that's hurricane formation. Alright, so back to the formation of a hurricane. As this tropical wave hits the ocean and starts to drop warm water and create thunderstorms and then begins to spin because it gets big, sometimes these thunderstorms start to form together in a large storm somewhat kind of spinning around a central column. As this begins to spin, warm air is drawn up into the column and being dispersed out away because the top of the thunderstorm has become a high pressure area, so the air moves away because it moves from high to low. So if there's a high pressure in the area, it's going to push that air out and away. If it's a low pressure area, it's going to draw air in, right? We know high, low. We talked about that in fires. We talked about that in wildfires. We've talked about it in tornadoes and hurricanes and all that. As it gets higher, the air cools and drops back down to surface level. 
because the air is being drawn up away from the surface of the ocean at the bottom of the column, it creates a low pressure area there. So the air that was originally at the top of the column becomes reheated as it falls down as it's dispersed away, drawn back in, and rises again, creating more thunderstorms. This is basically how hurricanes form. It draws that warm air in in the center, pushes it up, disperses it out because there's a high pressure area at the top of the column, disperses it out over, it cools as it spreads out, falls down, warms back up again, goes towards the center, goes back up, and it's an entire chain that creates this hurricane into what a hurricane becomes. Now, once the winds reach about 25 miles per hour, it becomes known as a tropical depression. Now, it is important to note that it still doesn't have an eye at this point. It is just a loose kind of collection of thunderstorms that are vaguely moving in a kind of similar direction and also spinning. It's like a group of college students headed towards the bar on a Friday night. You don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going. They're all kind of moving in a jumbled mass, and if you get in the middle of it, it'll be kind of uncomfortable for you, but not terrible. Once this process continues and the wind speeds increase, the storm will start to form an eye, that calm area of low pressure that hurricanes are known for. At 39 miles per hour, wind speeds, the storm will gain a name and becomes a tropical storm. And then it just continuously feeds off itself on warm air coming off the ocean until it reaches wind speeds of 74 miles per hour, where it officially becomes a Category 1 hurricane. Category 1 hurricanes of wind speeds from 74 to 95 miles per hour. Category 2 is 96 to 110. Category 3 is 111 to 129. Category 4 is 130 to 156, and a Category 5 is anything over 157 miles per hour. That scale is known as the Saffir-Simpson scale. Each category more or less refers to the level of damage that can be expected from the storm, and anything over a Category 3 is considered a major hurricane. Now, one thing that routinely comes up with a hurricane is a pressure reading. It's always like 900-something MB or... 800-something MB. If it's 800-something MB, you're having a major problem. That MB stands for millibars and is the measure of the amount of atmospheric force exerted on one square meter of surface. It's the barometric pressure, basically. When the barometric pressure drops, air and water vapor is able to rise easier, continuing to feed the storm. Because the eye is the lowest pressure of the entire hurricane, because if it wasn't, the storm wouldn't rotate, we measure the barometric pressure there. The normal barometric pressure at sea level is 1,013.2 millibars. If you're looking at a storm's pressure and it starts to drop lo lower, the storm is building. If it starts to go higher, the storm is weakening. And the lower the pressure generally correlates to a stronger storm. Now, we need to talk about trade winds real quick. Trade winds are the winds that blow from east to west right around the equator, then push the storm across the Atlantic and up into the eastern seaboard, the Gulf of Mexico, or Central America as well as absolutely crushing the Caribbean on a regular basis. Seriously, the Caribbean always gets fought, forgotten about with hurricanes, and they are regularly getting smacked by almost every storm that comes through. Now, a thing I didn't discuss during the last episode, which was a mistake, was the makeup of a hurricane, because there are different parts, and each part has a different impact on land. We are going to start on the outside and work our way in. If you look at a hurricane, it obviously spins out from a defined center with very distinct arms. Every drawing of a hurricane has these arms. These have a name. They're called rain bands. They are frequently extremely intense thunderstorms. These rain bands frequently dump large amounts of rain on a very widespread area. 
They can be anywhere from 50 miles from the center to over 500 miles away. And it's not just rain, it's lightning and wind and thunder and, well, the occasional tornado. The, free, the wind is frequently well over tropical storm speed, which is between 39 miles per hour to 73 miles per hour, just as a reminder, which isn't exactly chump change, and the fact that the wind is that strong, possibly hundreds of miles from the main body of the hurricane, is quite something. These storms are frequently severe, and they spin out of all sides of the hurricane, and can also spin up tornadoes, generally of an EF2 or lower, so not the super strong tornadoes, but nothing to shake a fist at, and you certainly don't want to be caught in one. These tornadoes are often seen in the right front quadrant of the hurricane. Why? Well, oftentimes, the right front side of the hurricane is the first to make landfall. The difference in wind over land versus wind over water can often change the speed and direction of the wind, creating that rotation needed to spin up tornadoes. The wind near the ground slows down or entirely changes direction because of the friction on the ground or trees or buildings or what have you, but the hurricane-force-driven wind high up in the atmosphere doesn't. This creates our column of rotating wind that can then go from horizontal to vertical, which will then drop down a tornado from there. Generally, like I said, these tornadoes tend to be on the weaker side, but they can, in fact, get to be stronger than EF2. These Raiden bands tend to make up the vast majority of the hurricane, but the next portion we're going to talk about is called the eye wall. The eye wall is by far the strongest and most dangerous portion of the storm. This is where the winds and rain and storm surge are going to be as aggressive and as strong as possible. The most damage from the storm will be in areas where the eye wall has passed over. The winds are strongest in the area because the airflow has the shortest to move around the center of the storm and all of the warm air being pulled in to fuel the storm is coming in this area. It's like how if you fire a gun, the bullet is moving at maximum speed as it leaves the barrel and then loses strength and speed as it gets farther from the barrel. Same thing as a hurricane. If you're standing close to the barrel of a gun, it's going to hurt. If you're standing close to the center of a hurricane, it is going to hurt. And after that, we move on to the eye. Everyone knows the eye. The eye of the hurricane is the dead center. It's that bullseye spot on maps that everyone points to. When the eye arrives, everything becomes calm briefly. You can occasionally see blue sky up above and the sun shining through. But this is a false sense of calm. Because once that eye moves through, you're back in the eye wall and everything is going crazy once more. So what happens early on in a storm is warm air from the ocean flows up and out away from the center fueling the storm. But sometimes, not all the air flows this direction. Occasionally, not all of the air flows up and over the edge of the storm. Sometimes it falls back down into the storm in the eye. This creates the rain-free area that you can see the sky through. We aren't entirely sure why it does this. We know what it does, but we don't know how or why. The air should be all flowing up and out over the storm and continue to fuel it, but some of the air just kind of doesn't and goes the other way. It doesn't really have a good explanation yet. So that ends our anatomy of a hurricane lesson. But we're not quite done with this intro yet. I know, I know, it's a long one, but just stick with me. Understanding how these things work is key to being able to understand how they impact areas and what precisely happened. So the next part we need to go to, into is the qu different quadrants of a hurricane. There are four. Obviously, quadrants mean four. They are broken up into front and back, left and right. So right front, left front, back right, and back left. The right front of a hurricane, the part towards land, tends to be much stronger than other areas of the hurricane. The reason for this is pretty simple. 
the winds that push hurricanes towards land are blowing from the east to the west. Hurricanes in the northern hemisphere rotate counterclockwise, a.k.a. east to west. Because of this, the winds on the right front of the storm are blowing with the prevailing winds and making this section of the storm have much stronger winds and a stronger storm surge as well. Storm surge, as a real quick explanation, is the water pushed by the winds onto land. So, the stronger the winds, the higher the storm surge. The front right also tends to have the strongest rain bands and is the area where most tornadoes form in hurricanes. Like we will see in Katrina, there was a whole tornado outbreak of 57 tornadoes all within the front right quadrant. The next part that we're going to move on to is the front left. So front right is the strongest, now we're going to move on to front left. This has slightly less wind, but an extremely strong storm surge. The wind is blowing all the water counterclockwise, and it is pushing the water into the segment. So if you're going to be northwest of the eye, generally, you will get a lot of water. Moving on to the next one, we're going to jump to the back right. The back right has minimal storm surge, but has a ton of wind. This part is also more or less with the prevailing trade winds, so the wind here tends to be relatively high. But the water is all being pushed away from it, so there's less storm surge here. And then last, and well, least, we have the back left. The back left is generally the weakest part of the storm. The winds here are blowing towards the prevailing winds, so they are less powerful, and the water has already been washed up on shore, so the storm surge tends to be low. Now, that doesn't mean this area isn't dangerous. If the wind speeds for the hurricanes are 140 miles per hour and the prevailing wind is 30 miles per hour to the west, well, that so-called weak section still has wind speeds of about 110 miles per hour. That is a lot. That's nothing to shake your fist at. That'll pretty permanently re relocate large portions of your home. So, let's get into this. We're going to start out with a little bit about the 2005 hurricane season. In the Rita episode, we talked about the predictions versus the actual numbers. To remind you, there are three major predictors for hurricanes. Colorado State, NOAA, and tropical storm risk. For 2005, here are their predictions. Colorado State predicted on December 3rd, 2004, that there would be 11 total named storms, 6 would reach hurricane status, and 3 would be major hurricanes. As a reminder, Category 3 plus is a major hurricane. Tropical storm risk predicted on December 10th, 2004, that there would be 10 total named storms, 6 would reach hurricane status, and 3 would be major hurricanes. NOAA would give a range of storms rather than a solid number. They predicted on May 16, 2005, there would be 12 to 15 named storms, 7 to 9 would reach hurricane status, and 3 to 5 would be major hurricanes. Are you ready for the actual numbers? The actual numbers for the 2005 season were 27 named storms. 15 of those were hurricanes, and 7 would be major hurricanes. They reached the sixth letter of the Greek alphabet in names with Zeta. That's part of the reason that they were uh, changed from being Greek letters, because Zeta was reached in 2020, and everyone got confused because it was the sixth one, and they were thinking it was the 26th one, and it was just a whole mess. Anyway, there were actually 28 storms in 2005. One was not ruled a storm, but it was, it was eventually was changed in a review of the season. It was actually a subtropical storm, which is different than a tropical storm, that they tend to form in water slightly colder, and are often not nearly as strong. That one kind of spun up over near Africa and kind of stayed there and didn't really do much damage. But it was actually 28, not 27. So, 
Just to give you an idea as to how active the 2005 season was, the previous record holder for most active seasons was 1933. 1933 had 20 storms. That's how unprecedented the 2005 season was. 2004 was considered a relatively active hurricane season, and it had 15 storms. 2005 had five storms see their names retired. That's more than any season ever. Just as a quick aside, 2020 surpassed 2005 as the most active season on record with 31 storms, but it only had three names retired. 2005 was one of the most destructive disaster seasons in all of history. It has only been surpassed by the 2017 hurricane season, largely because of Hurricane Harvey, which I'll probably do an episode on in the future. Now with all that out of the way, let's get into this storm. To talk about the formation of Hurricane Katrina, we need to talk about an entirely different storm. Well, depression. That depression is Tropical Depression 10. Tropical Depression 10 formed from a tropical wave coming off the coast of Africa on August 8, 2005. It moved westward and began to organize into the beginnings of a tropical depression on August 11th, and then formed into a tropical depression around noon local time on August 13th. This depression kind of got bumped around by different winds before being to, beginning to dissipate back into a less organized low on August 14th, and then back into a tropical wave on August 18th, just northeast of the Leeward Islands, which is that little archipelago just north of Venezuela, and east of Puerto Rico in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, so why do we care about that? Well, we need to talk about the atmosphere. Basically, all weather happens in the lowest level of the atmosphere, the troposphere. The troposphere is then subdivided-ish into different levels. There's lower, mid, and upper. Now, in all my research, I found about 369 different height divisions for how they were divided. They're more or less divided into low being from the ground to five to 10,000 feet, mid being 10,000 to 20,000 feet or so, and then, every th and then the upper, everything above 20,000 feet up to the tropopause at an average of 36,000 feet. The tropopause is the next layer of the atmosphere after, after the troposphere. So, just, that's not exact, don't take that as the exact, this is how it's divided, but that's the general overall of what I was finding, because everywhere has completely different divisions of how they want it divided into low, mid, and upper. Anyway, anything above 36,000 feet doesn't matter, it is too high. It is normally divided by pressure and not height, so... That's why there's such a range. It's not necessarily the height, it's the pressure at that height. That's because the height may vary depending on the given pressure. So if you look at a map with a bunch of lines and some numbers and it says it's the 500 millibars pressure, the numbers on those lines are the height that pressure is found at. Each level of the troposphere tells you different things about what is happening at the surface and is way too complicated to get into here. So best way to explain that is it's not necessarily divided into distances from the ground. It kind of is generally, but for specific heights of what the pressure is, it's divided or what the, the level is, it's divided by pressure. So if you have a 500 millibars, the numbers on there tells you how high that pressure is at. All of that was to tell you that when Tropical Depression 10 dissipated on August 18th, only the lower level portion fully dissipated near Cuba. So that's the port part that's from the ground to five to 10,000 feet, depending on the pressure. The mid-level portion sat just to the east of that and kind of hung around. At 
that same time, a new tropical wave that had emitted off the coast of Africa on August 11th merged with this mid-level portion on August 19th, just north of Puerto Rico. This made a large area of thunderstorms, and this group of thunderstorms began to drift northwestish over the next several days. Eventually, atmospheric conditions changed and allowed the system to organize into a tropical depression over the Bahamas around 2 p.m. Eastern Time on August 23rd, and was thus named Tropical Depression 12. The depression continued to strengthen overnight into August 24th and turned into Tropical Storm Katrina at about 8 a.m. on August 24th. It then turned due eastward and headed directly for the Florida on the 25th of August, and by 5 p.m. on August 25th, after a period of rapid strengthening, Katrina reached hurricane status for the first, but not the last time, and was headed straight for the southern tip of Florida. Katrina made first landfall on the border of Miami-Dade County and Broward County, Florida, at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time on August 25th, after having been a Category 1 hurricane for all of an hour and a half, traveling at a southwesterly angle. The maximum sustained wind at the time was about 80 miles per hour. Katrina then continued to travel across Florida with a defined eye. The storm weakened down to a tropical storm, but was able to maintain some strength thanks to the warm waters of the Everglades. Throughout South Florida, Hurricane Katrina caused widespread damage with many homes flooded and 14 total deaths. One man was killed when a tree fell on him while inspecting damage, one man was killed when a tree fell on the car he was in, and one man hit a tree while driving and trying to avoid another tree that had fallen down. Several others drowned in floodwaters throughout South Florida. In total, there was over $600 million worth of damage throughout Florida as Katrina traveled through the area. The big issue with Katrina in South Florida was the rain. The storm was moving at a whopping 6 miles per hour. It was dumping 1 to 2 inches of rain per hour as well, which will cause flash flooding every time, especially factoring in, at the, that point, a relatively minor storm surge from Katrina. Now, after traveling through South Florida for a few hours, the center of Katrina emerged into the Gulf of Mexico at about 1 a.m. on August 26th. Literally one hour later, the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico strengthened it back up to hurricane status. During the day on August 26th, the National Weather Service was predicting Katrina to turn northward and make landfall in the Florida Panhandle somewhere around, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, I tried really hard, Apalachicola, Florida. If you are from Apalachicola, I hope I said that right. I'm very sorry if I said it wrong. Anyway, but there was a problem. The Navy, at the same time, was predicting the storm to actually hit 300 miles west of there in New Orleans. The National Weather Service, not long after, moved their prediction further west to around Gulfport, Mississippi, which is still about 100 or so miles from New Orleans. It was at this time of this confusion that the Louisiana Emergency Operations Center was activated and the governor of Louisiana put the National Guard on alert. But remember, Louisiana still wasn't expecting to be impacted by Katrina at this point. There was a meeting of all of the states that were expected to be impacted by Katrina. Louisiana was not present, but the governor still activated them anyway, which was a good idea. From the 26th, until about 2 a.m. on the August 27th, the wind speed of Hurricane Katrina went from about 75 miles per hour to 110 miles per hour in literally 24 hours. It had become a Category 3 hurricane. 
But it wasn't just the wind speed that dramatically changed during the 27th of August, 2005. It was the physical size of the storm. Previously, tropical storm winds had extended about 80 miles out in a radius around the eye. But as the wind speeds increased, the storm doubled in size, and tropical storm winds now extended 160 miles out from the eye. That's tropical winds stretching across a 320-mile stretch. That's basically the length of the state of Indiana, north to south. Katrina was located just north of Cuba and was currently lashing the western end of the island with tropical force winds and heavy rain. This strengthening was then stalled by an eyewall replacement cycle. Occasionally, the eyewall of a hurricane will be replaced as a new eye forms. Sometimes this causes the storm to weaken. Sometimes it just stalls strengthening. Katrina was the second one. Once the eyewall replacement was finished, Katrina took off. In the next 12 hours, the winds in the storm went from about 110 miles per hour to 170 miles per hour at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on August 28, 2005. It also continued to expand in size with tropical force winds reaching out 230 miles from the eye and hurricane force winds reaching out over 100 miles from the eye. Katrina then began to turn and move northward straight for New Orleans. The worst case scenario was now on. Category 5 hurricane was headed straight for New Orleans. This is a good point to stop and set the stage here. As nearly everyone knows, the main area of focus for the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina was New Orleans. And that's for good reason. As many have joked before, New Orleans is a city built in a bowl. Except it wasn't, originally at least. As New Orleans currently sits, over 50% of it sits at some amount below local sea level. This was not always the case. When the city was first founded and built, all of it was above sea level. New Orleans was originally a French colonial city founded in 1718. The rumor is, funny enough, the French explorer who found the city was actually on the run from hurricanes that kept hitting what is now modern-day Mississippi. They founded the city on the only high ground surrounding the outlet of the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico to protect against flooding. Now, they also founded it for some other reasons, but the the one big rumor that isn't confirmed is that they were running from hurricanes, which is, you know, pretty funny. And, well, they founded it on the high areas to avoid flooding, which makes sense. Most of that area is entirely swamps, and swamps tend to flood, and we all know the Mississippi regularly floods, so they wanted to avoid that and also not live in a swamp. Well, what was a swamp? You see, the French then ceded the territory to the Spanish, and the residents of New Orleans hated that. Like, a lot. Like, enough that they took over the city at one point and demanded the French take them back. And they basically called them and were like, Baby, come back. I'm not going to sing for you guys, I'm sorry. Um, and the French government was just like... No, we, no, that's that's theirs. You're, you're Spain. You're Spanish now. And they did not like that. Funny enough, most of the French Quarter, well, what is now known as the French Quarter, was actually built during Spanish rule. So most of that is actually Spanish. Um, if you go to New Orleans and you go into the French Quarter, um, a lot of this the city streets there have the original French names and also the Spanish names and the current names as well uh, on signs on the walls um, on the buildings there. It's super cool. I entirely recommend visiting New Orleans. Uh, just anyway, that's besides the point. Anyway, funny enough, after the French government was like, no, you are Spanish now, you have to stay Spanish, give them back the city. 
the Treaty of Aranjuez, Spain, gave the Louisiana Territory, which is what New Orleans was the capital of, back to the French for a very brief moment of time when Napoleon was attempting to reestablish the colonial French Empire that had lost after uh, losing several wars and a whole lot of, well, nonsense and the French Revolution and all that when Napoleon had that brief moment of, I'm going to recreate the entire French Empire and take over the entirety of Europe. And then he got um, sent back, he got sent to exile for the first time, not the last time, for the first time. And then he traded, uh, well, he didn't trade it. He sold the Louisiana Territory almost immediately afterward to the United States. Uh, somewhere in there, he also had the Leclerc expedition to Haiti to retake it after the only one of the only successful slave revolutions in history, the Haiti Re uh, Revolution, which is entirely interesting. And if you have not read about the Haitian Revolution, I entirely recommend it. It is absolutely fascinating history. Uh, I 100% recommend it. Uh, it also it very thoroughly will explain how much of a jerk Napoleon was and how terrible he was. Um, this is a Napoleon hate podcast, so if you love Napoleon, I'm sorry. He was the worst, and I hate him. Anyway, New Orleans and the Louisiana Territory was sold to the United States, and then it began to expand from there. And it really, really, really wanted to expand into further areas that were more low-lying than you would want, being surrounded by the Gulf of Mexico and the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain. So they came up with an idea. Starting in 1899 and continuing on, an engineer by the name of Albert Baldwin Wood began a project to install pumps throughout the New Orleans area in order to help prevent flooding and drain the swamps that were surrounding the current city. This gave the city of New Orleans a bunch of new area in order to build on that was somewhat stable. Massive quotations on the word stable. The problem is, as the water was pumped out of these areas, the soil began to sink thanks to the water no longer being there to hold it up. So as you pump that water out, that soil that was there was partially being held up by that water table. So if you remove all of that water, that soil is going to drop down. And what that happened in New Orleans was it made it into essentially a bowl. And if you built on that land before the soil was able to fully sink and compact, it also sank whatever was sitting on top of it. That means that New Orleans started to sink and is still sinking to this day. What it also did was add new areas for the city to flood. So they put the pumps in in an attempt to prevent flooding and to build more areas to build on, and they also ended up creating a new, larger flooding problem. Now, of course, this problem was well known by 2005. New Orleans had major floods in 1927, 1947, 1965, and 1995. By 2005, there was a system of a large amount of pumps throughout New Orleans, as well as a large system of levees and flood walls the levees and flood walls were there to keep the water in Lake Pontchartrain, in the Gulf of Mexico, and in the Mississippi River, and the pumps were there for any water that did get in to be able to pump back out, and it was hopeful that it would withstand any amount of water thrown at it. Heavy foreshadowing. Except we're not going to go into that yet. Now, if you know New Orleans, 
you know that the water problems don't only come from it being a former swamp or being below sea level or the ocean. You know that just north of the city is another giant body of water, the oft-mispronounced that I've said multiple times, Lake Pontchartrain. If you go to New Orleans, make sure you hear someone pronounce the lake name first before trying anything, or they will, in fact, laugh at you. Ask me how I know, and how I know very specifically how to pronounce Pontchartrain. It is not spelled like it is pronounced. It is spelled P-O-N-T-C-H-A-R-T-R-A-I-N, Pontchartrain. Make sure you say it right. They will laugh at you. And if you do find yourself in the area, make sure you pronounce it right. But I also 100% recommend taking the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway across the lake. It's the longest continuous bridge over water in the world, and it is quite the experience, especially if you're driving over it as a storm is rolling in, because it's only, it, it's, I can't remember exactly how far it is up the wa- off the water, but it looks like it's a lot closer than it is, and it is eye-opening and exhilarating to drive down it with the windows down, blaring child in time, driving into a thunderstorm as you come up on New Orleans, or Alternatively, you can blare House of the Rising Sun, also rolling into New Orleans. Also an excellent feeling because you can feel the humidity coming off of the lake and off of the gulf, and it's just, you can see lightning in the distance. Anyway, I'm rambling again, I'm sorry, but it's great. New Orleans is great. Anyway, the issue with Lake Pontchartrain is that it's a massive body of water, and the only thing really keeping the water in the lake are levees on the north side of the city. Since, you know, the city is now in a bowl, So you've got to have some pretty tall walls to keep the water in the lake. Otherwise, the lake will now be where New Orleans is, and it will just be a lake, bigger lake. So just to fully update you on the issues here, you've got the gulf on one side providing storm surge, and then the storm surge that's coming from Lake Pontchartrain from where it connects to the Gulf of Mexico. And then you've got the Mississippi River and other various water sources. There's just a lot of available water sitting next to what is essentially an empty bowl being held up by man-made levees. It was, shall I say, ripe for disaster. Also, New Orleans was woefully underprepared for a hurricane of massive proportions. The other problem with Lake Pontchartrain and the other lakes around New Orleans, and New Orleans in general, is there are very few roads that can be used to evacuate out. In order to counter this, Louisiana implements contraflow. Basically, both sides of interstates go in the same direction if there's evacuation, which is out. Louisiana had tried to do this previously with Hurricane Ivan when it was headed towards New Orleans with one major problem. They didn't actually coordinate, so each town or ward went out at a separate time. It was an absolute free-for-all. So the roads, predictably, became less a road and more a parking lot. And then Ivan veered off and hit near Alabama and Mississippi, rather than a direct hit on New Orleans, as predicted. After that, many New Orleans residents vowed to not evacuate again, rather than sit in a 14-hour drive to Baton Rouge that should normally take, at most, two hours. And then just a month before Katrina, Hurricane Dennis also appeared to be headed right at New Orleans but it also veered off and smacked Alabama instead. Many in New Orleans just weren't worried. The hurricanes had always missed them, and even if they didn't, it couldn't be as bad as sitting in traffic, unable to move for hours upon hours of an end. It also super didn't matter, because one of the parish presidents had decided on his own to send his parish on a mandatory evacuation early and thus cause traffic. Traffic that ultimately didn't matter, but still eroded the confidence New Orleans had in their evacuation plans. So, 
during Hurricane Dennis the month before, one of the parish presidents was supposed to wait until another parish had evacuated and then ordered his evacuation. But he decided he wasn't going to wait and sent them anyway. Uh, he got a unfortunate nickname from that called the Premature Evacuator, which, yeah, is pretty funny. But anyway, back to the seriousness. That's not all of the issues. This was 2005. The important issues in 2005 were terrorism. Things that didn't per directly pertain to terrorism were often ignored. That means when states requested money to help pay for buses in the event they needed to mandatory evacuate their entire city in one of the poorest states in the entire country, because at least 100,000 people in the city didn't have cars to evacuate, it was denied. I wonder what city and state that could have been. Hint, it's New Orleans and Louisiana. New Orleans had also been discouraged from building shelters inside the actual city itself because it had been deemed too dangerous for anyone to stay in a shelter in the city if a massive hurricane was headed that direction. And, um, I don't know if you can see the issue there, but no car equals no evacuation. No shelter means no self place. No safe place means trying to ride at a hurricane with massive storm surge and inches of rainfall in a city sitting below sea level because all the poorest parts of New Orleans, the parts where no one has a car, are all, well, below sea level. So, you can't have buses to evacuate the poorest portions of your city, but you also can't have money to build shelters, because no one should be there. Uh, I, if you guys figure out how that logic works, I would love for you to let me know. And then there is another portion that frequently gets overlooked. It's what are you going to do to feed, house, clothe, and give people comfortable places to sleep in the during and after this event? Because they've got an entire city that is about to be destroyed, and they don't have enough food or water or clothes for all of the people they're going to need to take care of. And anytime they request anything... Because it wasn't a terroristic threat, it was generally being ignored, or it, if it wasn't ignored, it was just shuttered off to some side and they got some token uh, attention and that was it. So they didn't have the resources available to take care of all these people that were going to evacuate and they were going to need to feed and give water to and give shelter to because they just didn't have the funds. So New Orleans was at best relatively underprepared. They had no shelters, they had no food, they had no water, and they really didn't have a way to get nearly 100,000 people out of the city. Well, they actually had two shelters, technically. They had the Louisiana Superdome, and they had the convention center in New Orleans, both of which I will talk about later in this episode, but we're not quite there yet, because both of those are interesting stories in and of themselves, some of which will end up being in episode three, just because it kind of takes place after the storm has moved through, but we're going to talk about them a little bit during the actual storm itself. So, back to our current event, current moment. The storm is still sitting off the coast of New Orleans. The first evacuation orders came into the low-lying areas along the coast on Friday and Saturday. These were mandatory. 
New Orleans at the time was under an optional evacuation. It was suggested they evacuate out of the city to the inner portion of the state and neighboring states because the hurricane was coming, but that no one would do anything if they didn't. What this meant in reality is that no one was evacuating. I mean, some people were, but the vast majority, the, a large portion, were not. If I don't need to evacuate, I'm not going to evacuate. If it's that serious, then you're going to make it mandatory. If it's not that serious, then it's still going to be optional. Now, some people will because, well, a lot of people don't want to live through a hurricane, especially in a city that's built in a bowl, but they, a lot of people didn't. They were out enjoying the sunny Saturday, living lives. Everyone leaving the low-lying areas was finding it extremely easy to get out because no one in the city was leaving. So if the only areas leaving are the areas along the coast, that's going to be a really easy evacuation for them because the, those are all relatively uh, minimally populated areas. They're going to be able to get out and get going to other places that are more safe without any major issues. It was wide open road. That evening the National Hurricane Center would realize New Orleans needed to be evacuated. So they called the governor of Louisiana. The governor of Louisiana was like, yeah, I agree. And so she then called the mayor of New Orleans, who reluctantly agreed. But he wasn't even sure he had the power to order a mandatory evacuation of New Orleans. This was New Orleans, after all. It was It's hard for anyone to imagine they could be like, yeah, the entire city that I'm in charge of, everyone inside it needs to leave now. And you need to leave. Not just you should leave just for sake of precaution. You need to leave. This is going to be catastrophic. But the next morning, the mayor announced a mandatory evacuation of New Orleans. That went about as you would expect with a rushed last-minute mandatory evacuation. Roads immediately became swamped, but it was moderately successful. By Sunday evening, that is literally the next day, Sunday evening, 1.2 million people, the vast majority of New Orleans, had evacuated successfully. They were out of the city, on their way to shelters throughout Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, all over. Only about 200,000 people remained in the city of New Orleans. Those who were too poor to leave, or those who just outright refused to leave their homes were all that was left. Some of those were in their homes, some of those were in the Superdorm, and some of them would be in the convention center. And while getting 1.2 million people out was successful, 200,000 left in the city is still a lot of people. And I want to uh, put into perspective something here, not even put into perspective, but talk about something here. Because after the previous evacuation had been an absolute disaster, one of the things that New Orleans government decided to do was they needed to figure out a way to get the evacuation orders out faster. And they decided the best way to do that was to talk to the churches. So the churches in New Orleans would be disseminated the evacuation order for Katrina. And then they would have their calling lists for their parishioners, and they would send out the evacuation order to them. So a lot of the evacuations for New Orleans, especially those that were more poor that didn't have cars or anything that could get them out, were organized by the churches on buses the churches had to get them out and get people to safety. So the churches played a huge role in the evacuation of New Orleans for Katrina and saved a ton of lives because they were able to disseminate the evacuation 
and help people get organized and get out, especially those who weren't going to be served because, again, those buses were denied by the federal government. But I got a little off track there. I want to go back to the evacuation real quick because the National Weather Service in Baton Rouge uh, put out a warning that is one for the ages that really put into full perspective for people what was likely going to happen. Now remember, at this point, this is still Category 5 Hurricane Katrina, the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico at that point. It was looking extremely grim at this point. And it, I mean, it was going to be extremely grim regardless now that we know with hindsight. But at that time, this was unprecedented. Now, I'm going to read the warning that they put out to tell people to evacuate in full because it is striking. The wording is insane. It's, it's wild. So, here we go. Extremely dangerous Hurricane Katrina continues to approach the Mississippi River Delta. Devastating damage expected. Most of the area will be uninhabitable for weeks, perhaps longer. At least one half of well-constructed homes will have roof and wall failure. All gabled roofs will fail, leaving those homes severely damaged or destroyed. The majority of industrial buildings will become non-functional. Partial to complete wall and roof failure is expected. All wood-framed, low-rising apartment buildings will be destroyed. Concrete block low-rise apartments will sustain major damage, including some wall and roof failure. High-rise offices and apartment buildings will sway dangerously, a few to the point of total collapse. All windows will blow out. Airborne debris will be widespread and may include heavy items such as household appliances and even light vehicles. Sport utility vehicles and light trucks will be moved. The blown debris will create additional destruction. Persons, pets, and livestock exposed to the winds will face certain death if struck. Power outages will last for weeks as most power poles will be down and transformers destroyed. Water shortages will make human suffering incredible by modern standards. The vast majority of native trees will be snapped or uprooted. Only the hardiest will remain standing, but be totally defoliated. Few crops will remain. Livestock left exposed to the winds will be killed. Now let's just, that's, that's a lot. So let's just break this down. Uh, we're going to start with the first portion of it uninhabitable for weeks, perhaps longer. They don't mean like it's going to be gross. They mean you literally cannot live there if you want to continue to be alive. Like it, it will be so destroyed, you will be exposed to the elements the entire time. Uh, all gable roofs will fail. That is, all roofs that have a peak will collapse. Not, not some of them, not occasionally. All of them will fail. And then we move to the next part. Industrial buildings will become non-functional. So that is, they, they will have no purpose. They will be partially destroyed. All wood-framed, low-rising apartment buildings will be destroyed. So that's, that's low-rising. So that's, you know, two, three, four-story apartment buildings will be destroyed. Not just they will have, like, they'll have damage or the windows will be blown out. They will be collapsed down onto their footprint, which likely means, because it's in the middle of a hurricane, 
everyone inside will likely die. Uh, they also said that concrete block low-rise apartments will sustain major damage, including some wall and roof failure. They are predicting concrete block buildings to collapse. Think how strong a storm has to be for them to predict that a large portion of concrete block buildings will be destroyed. And then we talk about high-rises. That's 20, 30 stories. That's the downtown buildings. They will sway so much in these winds that some of them will collapse. So, a skyscraper, an Orleans skyscraper collapsing in the middle of a hurricane. That is insanity. That is, that is terrible. That is apocalyptic stuff. That is catastrophic disaster. And then the airborne debris will be widespread. So when we talk about the hurt, or when we talk about tornadoes, we're talking about people being hit by washers and dryers and things like that. But that's only for a few seconds. This is for hours. There will be airborne debris that includes refrigerators, washers, dryers, dishwashers, air conditioning units outside. They're talking about small vehicles being thrown through the air as projectiles. So if you walk outside you're going to be hit by something and you will be killed by whatever is flying through the air. Imagine walking outside in the middle of a storm and a car hits you. You'd expect that in a tornado. You'd expect that for 30 seconds. This hurricane, they're predicting that to be constant for hours. This is, this is otherworldly. Absolutely otherworldly. They also talk about the power outages will last for weeks. That happens in a normal hurricane. This one is going to be way worse because it is massive in size and scope. And the uh, water shortages will make human suffering incredible by modern standards. So one of the issues with hurricanes is the storm surge, and it creates floods, and those floods break things. And then all of the water in the area can become contaminated. And if the power's down and the generators in the water treatment plants do not work, then you don't have any water to drink. So you will be getting sick, or you will not be able to drink at all, and you will die. It is the prediction for what Hurricane Katrina was at Category 5 strength was biblical. It was absolutely the total destruction of New Orleans. And they were right. If Katrina hits New Orleans at full Category 5 strength, New Orleans as a city was probably going to be wiped off the map. Fortunately... That's not what would happen. An outer eyewall started to form in the hurricane, and an eyewall replacement cycle began, which rapidly weakened the monster storm from an extra-powerful Category 5 to a high-end, still supremely powerful, Category 3. It was also still hugely massive in sheer size. But that just meant that the cata catastrophe was not as biblical as it could have been, but that is splitting hairs at this point. Hurricane Katrina finally made landfall on Monday. August 29th, 2005, at 6.10 a.m. near Burris, Louisiana. Of course, at this point, most of New Orleans had already been being smacked by hurricane-force winds for hours since Katrina was a massively huge storm covering a gigantic area. So remember earlier when we talked about the right front quadrant being the most powerful portion of the storm? Well, during the time that it made landfall in Louisiana, the winds in that area were about 125 miles per hour. Now, 
I said about 125 miles per hour because it's kind of a guesstimate based on what had been observed previously. That's because the storm was so powerful, it knocked power out through the area almost immediately and destroyed all of the wind gauges. This also meant that the storm surge was not also adequately gauged because the storm was so powerful, it also knocked out all of the storm surge gauges and did not give it an accurate reading. Now, Louisiana and New Orleans in particular doesn't really know what the height of the storm surge was. It's generally estimated to be about 12 feet to about 19 feet, depending on what source you look at or where you, who you talk to, where you look. What isn't argued is that storm surge would cause major problems throughout the area. Now, I'm going to cover the flooding aspect in New Orleans in a different episode because otherwise this episode would be even longer than it already is, but I do want to talk about some of it here that happened during the actual storm itself. So during the storm, the storm surge smacked the I-10 twin bridge across the eastern portion of Lake Pontchartrain that connects eastern New Orleans to Slidell on the north shore of the lake. The, bridge consists of, the bridges consist of a total of around 866 concrete spans in total. Thanks to the design of the bridge with a gap underneath, when the water rose up with the storm surge, the concrete spans of the bridge were able to float on top of the water, and when the water went back down, the spans were put back down, some on the same spot, just slightly askew, others were completely disappeared and sank to the bottom of the lake. Over half of the spans on the bridges were either moved or gone. Either way, the bridge was completely unable to be used. This was one of the only ways in and out of the city, and it was now gone. The Lake Pontchartrain Causeway, which I talked about earlier, was closed for public use and was only being used by emergency vehicles, so there were very few ways out of the city after the storm. The wind also caused significant problems throughout the storm. It immediately killed essentially all power in the area, which was also helped by the storm surge as some of the flooding took out some of the power lines. Cell phone service and internet were completely down. Emergency personnel were forced to rely on news reports for conditions in different parts of the state because that was the only way they would get information. It was shaping up to be a complete catastrophe. Meanwhile, in one of the only operational shelters in the city, 16,000 people had taken shelter in the Superdome. Their experience throughout this entire episode is a disaster in and of itself, but we're going to do our best to cover it here. So the first people started showing up to the Superdome on Sunday. General manager of the Superdome, Doug Thornton, showed up to the stadium and the line to get in was stretching for nearly a quarter mile. Thousands were waiting to get into one of the only shelters in the city. The Superdome had food for everyone, and in the past, they'd only been there a couple days at most and then gone home. And they hadn't really had any problems, it just, the storm had gone one way or the other and missed New Orleans, and they'd never really had to really buckle down and deal with any of the major problems of losing power or running out of food or running out of water or having to be there for days and days at a time. At most, they'd been there for the night, gone up the next morning, and gone home because the storm had missed, and all they had was a little bit of wind and a little bit of water. That would not be the case this time. The first issue came on early on. The eye of the hurricane made landfall about 6.10 a.m., right? At 6.20 a.m., Doug Sorton, the manager of the Superdome, was in a meeting with the National Guard about a status update on what was going on outside. It was windy. It was rainy. It was so windy, the trees had bent sideways, and the rain was blowing sideways. 
right at that moment, the lights in the Superdome flickered, went out briefly, then came back on. To those seeking shelter inside the Superdome, this was likely just another event in the storm. Power flickers during the storms, it happens all the time, even in storms that aren't hurricanes. But to those in the know, this was a much worse sign. It meant that the power had just gone out and the backup generators were running the building. And they weren't designed to run much more than the lights. Everything else was turning off. That meant all the refrigerators containing all the food were now off. When this storm went by, it is Louisiana in August in the middle of a swamp. It was going to get hot, and it was going to get hot extremely quickly. That means the food would spoil quickly. And another thing, the air conditioners would also not run. Again, this is August in Louisiana. I don't know if you've ever been down there in August, but it's going to be hot, and it's going to be humid, and it was going to be that very quickly, especially with the flooding from the storm, because that all that water is going to start to evaporate, and it's going to make it even more humid. This was bad, and it was going to get worse. And it also meant that those in the building who relied heavily on emergency equipment that needed to be plugged in would no longer work. So those on like ventilators and things like that, none of that's going to work anymore. They're going to struggle. And then it got worse. The next thing that went wrong was not long after that. The strong winds of Hurricane Katrina ripped a portion of the roof off the Superdome. Now wind, rain, debris, whatever could get inside. But it also was a source for the last bit of air conditioning in the building to get out. But they couldn't think about that right now. They needed to make sure the generator, the only thing powering the lights and some of the equipment, stayed running. There were two problems with that. First of all, the generator only had enough fuel to last until Tuesday at the latest, which was the next day. Second of all, the generator was below ground. This was obviously an issue. If the Superdome flooded, that meant the generator flooded. If the generator flooded, there would be no lights and no working medical equipment. It would end up being chaos. And then another wrench was thrown into the plan. The National Guard's headquarters downtown flooded. So they relocated to the last shelter in the city, the Superdome. Now they have to find space for all these people from the National Guard and also for the people already inside, and somewhere the National Guard can start doing rescues throughout the city. It was a madhouse. Now, it wasn't the only operational shelter in the city. Frequently overshadowed by the Superdome, the New Orleans Convention Center also held nearly 25,000 people. It had all the same problems as the Superdome, just for whatever reason didn't get nearly as much coverage. They suffered in silence and agony as they watched the city around them be ripped apart by the massive storm. And then you factor in the rain. Portions of Louisiana got up to 15 inches of rainfall in the hours the storm came ashore. Many parts of New Orleans would end up getting less than that, but it was still a lot of rain and it's still going to cause flooding. And that's where our Superdome issue comes in. The next day, Tuesday, those in the Superdome realized they were running out of diesel for the generator. But they also realized if they opened the door to the generator room, all the water that was pushing up against the door would come rushing in and swamp the generator, killing it. But they had to refill it. They wouldn't have lights without it. So the lieutenant colonel in charge of the National Guard, Doug Mountain, sent two of his engineers down to figure out how to get the generator refueled without swamping it and killing all power. And they came up with a pretty good solution. 
Back the truck up to the door, bust a hole in the wall, and run a hose through to the generator from there and kind of hope it works. Thornton literally asked one of the engineers, do you think this will work? The reply was legendary. Hell if I know, but it's the only shot we got. Thankfully it did. The generator was refueled and it would last a bit longer. But real quick, I want to go back and talk about the National Guard issue because I had just said that the National Guard had been set up elsewhere and then had to move to the Superdome and set up operations there. That's because the Emergency Operations Center, where they were based out of for this storm, was Jackson Barracks in the Lower Ninth Ward in the southeastern portion of the city, not too far from the world-famous French Quarter. Now, Jackson Barracks was founded, was built on a grant from President Andrew Jackson, and it had survived many, many things throughout the years. And as far as anyone can remember, according to most of the National Guardsmen stationed at the post, it had never flooded in any of the floods that had struck New Orleans. Any of the hurricanes, nothing. None of those had ever flooded Jackson Barracks. So at 8.10 a.m. on Monday, August 29th, Bennett Landrino, the commanding general of the Louisiana National Guard, was in the State Emergency Operations Center in Baton Rouge and was calling the Jackson Barracks to see how things were in New Orleans because he wanted to get an idea of how bad the storm was and how long they would have to wait before they could start fielding calls to go and rescue people who were trapped after the storm. And the guy he was talking to on the other end of the phone was basically telling him, you know, it's windy, it's rainy, we're in the middle of a hurricane, of course it's windy and rainy, but for the most part, everything is relatively fine, right? We're weathering as per normal, Jackson Barracks is holding up, there's nothing wrong, we just need to get through the storm so we can get out to other portions of the city that are going to be harder hit, people that are trapped by floodwaters from the storm surge, or floodwaters from the rain, the flash flooding, or from buildings that have collapsed, things like that, we can start really going out and responding to 911 calls and helping people as are expected of the National Guard in the aftermath of a hurricane. Now, as this National Guardsman is giving his report to his commanding officer and explaining to him that, you know, it's normal condition, he stops mid-sentence and says, hang on, I need to go check something. And he goes and he comes back after a brief minute and starts sounding like he's panicking. And he says, sir... I don't know why, but there must be a foot or two of water coming down Claiborne. No, check that. Three feet. Sir, I don't know what's happened, but there are cars floating down Claiborne Avenue. It looks like a river. Now, Claiborne Avenue is the road right outside of Jackson Barracks. And Jackson Barracks had never flooded. So, something was going spectacularly wrong. And what that spectacularly wrong thing was, was a levee break. Now, losing your main operations center is bad. Like, that, that's, that's bad. But these types of situations always have backup plans. And that backup plan was the Superdome. Now, what is generally not expected is for if it does, if the thing that has never flooded before does in fact flood, it to get eight feet high, which is what happened to Jackson Barracks. Now, they had evacuated all of their helicopters and stuff before the storm, but they had a lot of high-water vehicles in the area to help drive through floodwaters. Unfortunately, 
the floodwaters came on so fast that they could get none of them out before the floodwaters got there, and they all sank and underneath the floodwaters and were destroyed and completely unusable in the aftermath. So not only did they lose their command post, they lost their vehicles they would normally use to get to rescue people, and then they had to make a mad dash through a Category 3 hurricane smashing their city and floodwaters coming in from all areas in an attempt to get to the Superdome so that they could regroup and figure out what they were going to do next. Now, there are undoubtedly more stories of insane survival and just wild odds from during the storm in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, but a lot of them are hard to find just because, well, a lot of the focus is on what happened after Hurricane Katrina left. But... The death toll from just the storm in Louisiana will never be known. The amount of damage that happened, the amount of death that happened after the storm left, and all of the water that was remaining in the city after the storm was gone, made it nearly impossible to determine who died during the storm and who would have died during the flood afterwards, and from being trapped for days on end waiting for rescue. New Orleans didn't take a straight-up brunt shot from this storm. They got the left front quadrant, which is still powerful, but it's not right front quadrant powerful. But because of the flooding after the storm went through, a lot of what was left was so destroyed, and a lot of the bodies that were left were so unrecognizable that no one knows if they died during the flooding or if they died during the storm. And another thing is that there were 911 calls throughout the storm, and 911 operators were going to have to tell them, we can't get to you right now, the storm is too bad, the floodwaters are too high, you're going to have to wait, we cannot go out right now. And then they would go out afterwards and follow up on those 911 calls, and those people would be gone. They wouldn't know if they were dead, if they managed to make it out on their own. Some of them would be found dead later. It was truly terrible. And we will never know the full impact of just Hurricane Katrina itself on New Orleans. We know what the impact of it was after the flooding, but we will never know the full death toll from just the effects of the storm, not including the levee breaks and flood wall breaks. Elsewhere in Louisiana, the damage was catastrophic. Let's travel down to where the eye actually made first landfall, Plaquemine Parish near Empire, Louisiana. To give you an idea of how destroyed Empire was, the population of the town in the 2000 census was 2,211 people. In 2010, it was 993. Literally halved. Now, some of that was due to Hurricane Rita as well, but still, that is a 50% decrease in 10 years. When Katrina made landfall, it may have dropped wind speed significantly, but that doesn't mean the storm surge was any smaller. The storm surge smashed Empire to bits. It picked up the local church whole and moved it several feet away off its foundation. Hundreds upon hundreds of boats were either sunk in place or lifted up and carried inland, landing in unusual places. Boats were on houses, in houses, on interstates, sitting in the middle of town, well, what used to be town, if you look at Empire now, even on Google Maps, you can see where the hurricanes have taken their toll. 
whole areas of what constitute the town boundaries where you can just make out what used to be property lines are sitting empty. Entire blocks of homes just washed away. Brick buildings were completely gone. And I'm not talking about just pushed over and fallen down. The entire building was gone, washed away, never to be found again. Nearby St. Bernard Parish was also extraordinarily hard hit. There was a state representative from St. Bernard who had decided to weather the storm in this parish's community center. And she managed to get out and make an estimate of how bad the water damage was and how much of the city was, or how much of the buildings in the area were underwater. And she estimated when she got out that 2,400 of the homes were underwater in the area. She was technically correct. There were 2,400 homes underwater. Uh, there were also about uh, 25,000 more in the area that were also underwater. That is correct. 27,000 homes and businesses throughout this parish of about 77,000 people were completely underwater, were entirely declared unlivable. Essentially, every building in the entire area was demolished because it was uninhabitable. You remember how I said that uh, Empire, with a population of 2,200, dropped to just over 900 in the years after Hurricane Katrina? Well, St. Bernard Parish had that population of 77,000. After the storm, it also decreased by 50% to about 35,000 people. Now think about that. It went from a massive, that would be the third largest city in the state of Nebraska. And it just halved. I, that is hard to imagine that the third largest city in the state of Nebraska would lose half of its population and they would just never come back. That's how bad this storm was. It wiped out an entire parish, an entire county was just gone. All of the buildings were destroyed. They were nothing but slabs. If they were left, they'd been moved and they were in giant pieces spread all around the entire area. It is... I, I don't have words to put it in just how bad this storm surge was here. There were rumors that entire parishes down the Louisiana coast were gone, that had just disappeared into the Gulf. And technically, for a moment, many of them likely were completely underwater. The water would eventually recede, but they were likely completely underwater no longer to exist. If you stayed behind in St. Bernard Parish, you got hit with a storm surge of 25 feet high that left about 15 feet of standing water throughout the area for days upon days. Anyone stuck in the parish was trapped on, hopefully, the second story of their homes if they had a second story or if it still remained, or they were stuck on their roof if they still had a roof. It would take months for power and water to return. The parish was annihilated. And then you get to factor in oil spills because there is a lot of oil production all along the Louisiana coast. And, well, they also get damaged by hurricanes. The Moreau refinery near St. Bernard Parish had an oil spill of major proportions. 
You see, 25 feet of water, which is what the storm surge was there, is a lot of water. And it managed to pick up an above-ground oil tank filled with about 85,000 gallons of oil and move it. Like, picked it up, moved it with the floodwaters. When it did so, it ruptured the tank. When the floodwaters receded some, that allowed several thousand gallons of oil to escape out into the neighboring area. The oil spill was only discovered when the U.S. Army Reserves began rescues in the area after the storm moved through and noted that some of the people they were rescuing from the floodwaters were covered in oil. Oil pipelines up and down the coast were destroyed. Oil leaked from everywhere into the Gulf and into the Louisiana marshes. And that's a part of Hurricane Katrina that regularly gets overlooked, the oil spills. Over 100 drilling platforms were destroyed out in the Gulf, but that is dwarfed by what occurred on land. In total, there were 138 oil spills throughout Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, leaking over 8 million gallons of oil out on the land, into the Gulf, and into marshes and wetlands. This isn't a single failure. This was all different kinds of failures. Large storage tanks having their tops ripped off and oil sloshing out over the sides. In one case, an entire storage tank was lifted off its foundation, placed several feet away, then ruptured, spilling all the oil inside. Pipelines were ripped open. Storage tanks were overturned. It was everywhere, and it was impossible to stop. And it wasn't like they could just wait for the storm to abate before going in to work on it, or wait for power or roads to be cleared. The workers responding to these spills went in literally as the storm was bearing down on the coast. They got there immediately and began work immediately. And the workers, those actually with boots on the ground doing things, did their jobs wonderfully. Now before we move on from Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, I want to really commend the New Orleans Fire Department because they did a fantastic job considering what was happening. They still responded to fires throughout the city during the storm as best to their ability. Now you have to remember, a lot of the city's underwater. Fire trucks aren't generally known for being able to navigate floodwaters super well, especially ones carrying giant tanks of water themselves. Uh, they still went out and they still fought fires over the city. Because one thing that people tend to forget is that just because there's a storm going on, dumping a ton of water from the sky and a bunch of water coming in from, you know, the ocean, there are still fires happening. And they're generally a lot worse because the fire department can't get there because there's floodwaters in the way. There were fires all over New Orleans during the hurricane. There are fires sparked constantly during all hurricanes. And generally, if there's a fire during a hurricane, it burns the building to the ground. Now, New Orleans did New Orleans Fire Department did a fantastic job. They were using the floodwaters as drafting sources to put out fires in buildings. They responded from the moment the storm landed until the very last end when the last floodwaters were finally pumped out of the city. They were responding, saving as many people as they possibly could. And they likely would have seen the absolute worst of it. They would have driven by bodies floating in the street that they couldn't do anything about. They would have driven by entire families of dead, holding onto each other, trying desperately to make it through the floodwaters, only to not make it through the storm. They would have seen the absolute worst of the worst, and yet, day in and day out, they went through that entire 
horrible scenario doing their absolute best to save as many people in the city that they love and put out fires and prevent it from becoming worse. And they did an absolutely commendable job. After smacking Louisiana with its second landfall, Hurricane Katrina would move on to smack Mississippi right in the mouth with a third landfall. But that is the story for another episode. The next episode, in fact. So that will be episode 43, uh, the effects of Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi. After that, we will come back to New Orleans and we will discuss in depth all of the flood wall failures, the levee failures, and we will have some harrowing stories of what was going on inside the Superdome, inside the convention center, and just everyday people's experience of having to live in New Orleans in those days afterwards when it became hot, when it became humid, and when the only place they could go was their roof or their attic. With that, we've reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, History Spilled Without the, the Vowels. Um, I have a YouTube that I am attempting to get off the ground. I'm not super good at videos yet, so we're still trying to figure that out, but it is Disastrous History. Uh, I am going to, at some point, go back and re-record all of my episodes as videos and give photos and things like that. I don't know when that project is going to happen because, well, I'm still trying to put out episodes. Um, so that's a project for future Anthony. But you can follow me there. Um, as always, I appreciate you guys. You guys are the best listeners in the world. Stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.